Hey, welcome to the Muso podcast. For those of you who don't know, Muso is a gig booking platform that connects hirers and artists. I'll be interviewing some incredible guests and uncovering their secret tips and tricks to hopefully give you a better understanding of the inner workings of the music industry. We're here. Episode one of the Muso podcast. Let me introduce myself. My name is Matt O'Gorman, drummer from the Melbourne band British India. And well, I couldn't be more excited to be hosting and welcoming our first guest today. I've been lucky enough to be in a touring band and have a career in the music industry for the last 15 years. And I still remember when Boomtown Records was formed, a fresh, young, independent label that every young band wanted to be on because it wasn't like anything else at the time. You had this real sense of community. Bands wore it with a badge of honour to be signed or even associated with the label. We saw it grow and change and eventually evolve into the powerhouse that it is today, Unified Music Group. Globally renowned, a multi-service music company formed in Melbourne with offices now in Los Angeles and London. Artist management, label and distribution services, publishing, touring, merchandise, and it even has its own festival, Unify the Gathering. And such a diverse roster too, with global ambition that's seen the likes of local acts like Vance Joy and the Amity Affliction springboard onto the world stage. They're also investing in the future of the industry too and helping companies that promote mental health and offer grants to help the next generation of musicians, photographers and sound engineers. I couldn't be happier to welcome the CEO and founder of Unified, Jaden Comerford. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm really well, man. Where are we Zooming you from at the moment? Uh, I'm in my spare bedroom <laughs> slash <laughs> office in our place in Fitzroy. This must be the longest time you haven't been on a plane to a gig or even to a pub as we're both in Melbourne. Yeah, I came back to uh, from LA at the uh, end of February. Yeah. And I had a flight booked back, I think, on the 20th of March. And obviously, I didn't take that flight. So yeah, yeah ever since then, I've, I haven't gone to Telemarine. Uh, I get my Qantas frequent flyer email. Yeah. It's you know, a- <laughs> <and> delete it. <laughs> it's bizarre. I bet, man. Hey, I'd love to kick off and touch on the Boomtown days and kind of paint a picture of what Melbourne was like in the early 2000s. I felt it was quite unique at the time. You know, young bands were playing the pubs again and warehouses too, not to mention. And we also had a really strong underage scene here too. What do you remember the most about those early days? Yeah, I could talk all day about it. But yeah, I was I was really lucky. One of my friends, um, we actually had a band together and his dad worked at Shop Records and he came up with the idea of us starting Boomtown Records together. And yeah. so we immediately had this amazing into this incredible powerhouse, which was Shop Records. But yeah, we just sort of got started. And our original plan with Boomtown was to release a compilation. And so yeah. we, we put out through like forums and chat boards, like we're doing this compilation. And this band, Wishful Thinking, sent me a fully finished album. Um, and that was the first band that we ever signed to Boomtown. And I didn't really know much about them. I didn't really know much about being a record label. I was just really lucky that we had this distribution deal with Shock. Um, and yeah, we put the album out and, you know, fast forward, you know, almost 20 years and, you know, we're sort of here today. But um, yeah, the underage scene was amazing. Like from yeah. about the age of 14, so like late late 19, uh, like late 90s, I'd get on the train every weekend and go to like, uh, get off at like West Richmond and go to like uh, Midian Studios and like all these like yeah. studios and see these like hardcore bands and ska bands and punk bands. And it was just wild. It was honestly such an incredible thing. So then to be able to put those bands' records out through my label, was just like a trip, I guess. And it must have been so crazy to watch their following 
grow and grow and grow. You had the freezer gigs, but a lot of the time international acts would come to town and the underage shows would outsell the over-18 shows. Yeah, totally. Well, there was the, the rehearsal shows and then we'd put on shows at the art house, like Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon yeah. shows. And that's how I met a lot of friends that I still work with to, to this day. So, yeah, it was um, it, it was awesome. Like, I, going thinking back to those times and, and some of these bands like Wishful Thinking recently put out new music and, and just really proud to, to hear those songs and, and, you know, stay in touch with those guys. It's like a really awesome thing to see. I want to talk about the Boomtown Showdown tour just quickly. What was yeah. it like being at that age touring eight or nine young punk bands around the country and, you know, playing at venues like the Corner Hotel too? That must have been one lesson in becoming a tour manager slash jack of all trades. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, like I remember going to Adelaide, but I didn't do any of the rest of the tour because I probably, to be honest with you, I probably couldn't afford to, you know, <laughs> like it was just like, it's it's so bizarre to think back to that because like, we even released a DVD of that, like the Boomtown Showdown DVD. Right, yeah. yeah, and I remember Tim James, who was running Shop Records at the time, you know, Tim, yeah. Um, yeah, we pitched him on the idea we're going to do a DVD. And he's like, Jaden, you know, no one buys music DVDs. I'm like, nah, but this one will be different. Um, um, but the underage kids would have bought it. Yeah, I think it did okay, but I think Tim was probably right in the end. I think he did the same with us, actually. Hey, around that time, we saw the launch of Napster and CD sales pretty much dry up. How did you react to that? What, did, what were your thoughts when that was happening? I imagine a lot of your bands would be quite reliant on selling CDs to fund tours and things like that. It's really fascinating. There's a lot, of, lot to unpack from my mindset at that time about what it means to be, I guess, an entrepreneur or to be trying something new because the reality is we launched in 2001 and I think iTunes launched in Australia in 2006. Um, So basically things were falling off the cliff and I would hear people say, oh, X major label just made X percent of their workforce redundant. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Um, I just sold another 10,000 CDs. Uh, You know, I just sold out the Boomtown Showdown. And yeah. so to me, it never seemed bad because I think I was starting at, at the beginning of the end of the music business. So yeah. it was all up from there. Um, that said, towards the end of like the sort of 2008, 2010, when, when the real reality had hit home of physical music, it did definitely start to get a lot harder because there was also this transition between like, like recording costs didn't come down and video costs didn't come down, all these things that yeah. the revenues yeah. did. And by that point, I had an office and I had some staff and I'd probably taken more risks than I'd had earlier. So I was starting to be like, oh, okay, yeah, this music business thing ain't as easy as I thought it was, you know, Um, which is around the time we started to evolve into artist management and merchandising and all the other different bits and pieces that, you know, ended up becoming what Unified is today. Yeah, it definitely felt like the wild, wild west there for a couple of years. But I think a great thing to come from that was regional touring in Australia. You know, like the 25-date tour seems normal now for most bands. But back then, because CDs sold, bands would only really go to the capital cities. So all of a sudden, you had pubs in Albury, Wagga Wagga, Bunbury, you know, even Hobart setting up PAs. And that became the new circuit. Totally, yeah. And we'll, like, if you don't mind me mentioning your band, but you guys were, like, I think one of the trailblazers as far as doing that kind of touring. But what was also cool about the sort of, the you know, the punk and emo and, and rock and a lot of stuff that we work with, uh, the, like, it wasn't just regional, it was also suburban. So we'd yeah. go out to Penrith um, in, in, in Sydney and we'd go to the, the Sutherland Shire, which is, like, South Sydney, and we'd do, like, the northern beaches, like Gosford and um, places like that. Um and in, in Melbourne, it was like 
Croydon and uh, the hotel, the Palio yeah, Bar. all that stuff. And like, I love that. And that's definitely coming back. Like I saw the Amity Affliction at the pier in Frankston at the start of this year. And it was just like, it was amazing. Like it was out of control. Yeah. So I love, I love regional touring, but I, I love suburban touring as well. I think that's a really powerful uh, place for, cause like that's where a lot of people live, obviously, you know, yeah, so, exactly. Uh, going to the city is fun, but it's a lot easier when you just have to go down the road. And great for international bands too. Like, who would have thought, like, when that was all happening, that five years later you'd be able to see Public Enemy in Frankston? <laughs> yeah, it sounds dangerous. <laughs> and that's around the time that you launched 2400. Yeah, so that was, we started 2400. It was very rudimentary at the beginning of it, but basically the motivation was the Amity Affliction had booked their first European tour um, and we somehow had to figure out how to pay for their flights. Um, and there was a bunch of merch left over from the prior tour. And back then we were just put it in the warehouse and like, you know, the warehouse, which was just like under yeah. someone's desk. Um, the garage. And it would uh, go out on the next tour. And someone was like, oh, there's this thing called Pay- PayPal and this thing called Big Cartel. Like, why don't we just put it online and put, post on MySpace and see what happens? Yeah. And we sold out all this merch. And so that was when we started to go, okay, well, we can reach our audience directly um, yeah. and generate really good cash flow for our artists on a regular basis. So, yeah, once again, fast forward a number of years and 2,400 is, yeah, it's a pretty, you know, big operation um, that supports, you know, you know quite, a, quite a lot of staff and creates a lot of really good revenue for a lot of artists. Definitely. And I, th- I think that was around the time you, we saw a resurgence in vinyl as well. Do you think people missed having something physical? Like even though a CD was a CD, like they missed having something they could hold and, you know, plug in and play. Yeah, vinyl is amazing. I was, we were watching, my wife and I watched uh, the Quentin Tarantino film Jackie Brown last night and there was a vinyl reference yeah. where, because uh, it was, it was I think mid-80s when CDs had just come in and uh, yeah. he was playing a vinyl and she's like, oh, you haven't updated no, she, she was playing vinyl, haven't updated the CD. And basically yeah. he says like, oh, they don't put out any new records on vinyl anymore. It's all the classics. And yeah. interesting because I think like now, arguably we're probably selling more vinyl records than CDs. Yeah. And I think that plenty of people listen to them obviously, but a lot of people also just buy them as a collector, like you said. So yeah, vinyl has been amazing for the music industry. It's, you know, at the beginning it took a while to figure it out because it's expensive. You've got to, it costs a lot of money to, to make vinyl. Um, but yeah. if you can get the numbers right, uh, it's a great thing for fans to be able to collect. And you get the feeling like it's really embedded now in the next generation of music lovers too. So I guess at this point you've got 2,400, you're doing management, you've got the label. Was Unified always the plan to put everything under the one umbrella or did it just kind of happen that way? There was a few things that went into that. Um, like I had, I was separating with a business partner at the time and, we were sort of looking at different strategic ways to sort of go forward. and um, But, yeah, this idea of Unified was uh, bringing together a whole bunch of things that I'd been doing throughout my career and try, yeah, trying to put them under one roof. And, you know, yeah. inevitably more has then grown from that. Um, yeah. You know, whether that's been like, you know, domestic La La Records or like a lot of different things that we do. But, but being able to brand it under one roof has sort of been very helpful and yeah, that was 2011 when that started. So next year will yeah. technically be 10 years of Unified, which is really cool. Um, and it was probably the hardest part of it all in hindsight was probably retiring the Boomtown brand. Um, and something that like really yeah. upset, really upset my mum. Um, she still mentions it like semi-regularly. Um, so yeah, that's something that's probably like my biggest regret from that, but, uh, maybe something that will rectify one day. 
Bit of a scoop on the Muso podcast. How important were your parents when you were starting out? Yeah, they were amazing because I lived at home until, I don't know, I was probably like 22 or something like that. So not too long, but um, long enough to be, you know, still living at home with your folks and yeah, having that support that, you know, if I was sort of living in a share house renting, I probably wouldn't have been able to do what I did. So, you know, they were never sort of investors in a sense of writing checks, but they were definitely investors in a sense of not charging me for the Wi-Fi and yeah, um, yeah. not getting too mad when I made international calls on that landline. <laughs> hey, do you still have your own Boomtown PO box? Does that is that still around? <laughs> That's a good point. I don't know. I, I, I should know that. No, I don't, I don't think so, unfortunately. <laughs> the original one was in Eaglemont, which is where my parents live. So it's yeah. quite, a, quite funny to think back to those times. So now that you'd launched Unified, were you actively out there looking for artists and managers to come under the umbrella or did that kind of stuff just happen organically? Well, I think when we first, when Unified first started as Unified, there was probably, uh, it, it, there's been so much time. I, I, I wish I had a timeline in front of me, but there's probably like 10 or so of us. And, you know, we started with a number of artists that were already, whether they were signed to Staple Management or Boomtown Records, but you know, there's been a core team at Unified for quite a long time now, like uh, people like Matt Rogers, Luke Logerman, Nick Yates. Yep. Like these people have all been at the company roughly 10 years or more um, yep. to some of my oldest friends and people that I yeah, just kind of wouldn't see myself doing what I do without yep. them. But equally, artists like the Amity Affliction, who we've, we've worked together for over 10 years, um, artists like Gilly and Violence Soho, advanced yeah. joy like these are all clients that we've worked with for a long time and, and in most cases like right from the beginning of their careers um yeah which is like super fulfilling um to be able to have that kind of investment uh long term in someone's career and then i think equally or at least hopefully a lot of them feel part of what we've done as well yeah. as far as growing and trying to you know trying to just just do the right thing every time you know, we can and, and do, yeah. do the best we can, basically. That leads into my next question really well. It seems like Unified's got a really strong working culture. Yeah, well, culture's interesting. I've been researching a lot at the moment because, you know, as we're all working remotely, you know, yeah. really being being intentional about culture is, is really key right now. But, you know, the, thing, the hardest thing about culture is, like, you can't really put it in a bottle. Culture is the result of what you do. So, and what you do is based off your core values and your principles yeah. and all these sorts of things. So you've got to remind yourself of that stuff. So it's, it's all about, it's about leadership and it's about when you say you're going to do something, doing it and looking after people and, but equally not being just like, you know, uh, some kind of, I'm, I'm not a saint, I'm still a business person. I still need to be yeah. able to make yeah. decisions. But if you can communicate with people and treat people with respect, yeah, most often people can understand uh, where you're coming from. But yeah, I think we have a culture that's very, very open and very honest. Um, and we just try really hard. Um, like we've just always tried really, really hard. And yeah. and that's what that's that's what I think sometimes makes us different. But I don't know. Um, oh, that's for sure. How important to you is routine obviously you're running this massive business we can't travel now what kind of things do you do day to day um yeah like routine is a huge thing for me um i like my main i've always or not always but for a very long time i've been big into meditation so that's like a huge part of my daily routine 
Um, and that also mixes with uh, like a physical yoga practice. Um, so moving the body and all that sort of stuff. I also do a lot of running. And so those three kind of really work well together from a physical yeah. and like physiological point of view. Um, but then I just read a lot, like a, like just try to sort of grab as much knowledge as I can and inspiration and stuff like that. So yeah. um, I think for me, like healthy body, healthy mind, um, if, I'm, if I'm looking after myself, I can I can do more. I can bounce back yeah. quicker in the morning. I can stay up later if I need to. Um, but equally, if I'm finished for the day, I'm more than happy to go to bed at eight thirty to be rested for yeah. tomorrow. Like I'm not. I don't sort of burn the midnight candle unless I have to. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think health is a really big part of how I look at the way I do things. But at the same time, you know, when the Napier Hotel opens back up across the street, like yeah, <laughs> I'll be at the bar drinking a pint. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I know, exactly. I know how to have fun, but you know, it's, once again, I take what I do really seriously and in order to perform at the level that we want to, we, we have to be in a good physical and mental state. What's been some of the best advice you've been given over the journey? Um, it's an interesting one. There's, there's a guy called Draw Arez who's an incredibly successful promoter and we promoted a festival together back in the day that was tremendously non-successful but um he said to me not all the glitters is gold um and it's something that really stood out to me and it's something i have to remind myself all the time and another way of saying that is is this an opportunity or a distraction because as an entrepreneur um, especially in an industry that's very entrepreneurial uh, and at a time where innovation's moving at light speed uh, it's easy to get distracted by opportunity so yeah. um, says the guy that owns like 15 companies. <laughs> but, yeah, focus is, focus is key and, and, yeah, not all that glitters is gold because, you know, starting a business or investing in a project, yeah. uh, it, needs, it needs time, it needs energy, it needs resources. And at the end of the day, if you do want to go to bed at 8.30 at night every now and then, um, you've got to make sure you've got your um, – you've allocated your time correctly. Over this recent downtime – have you had to kind of restrain yourself a bit from going? Oh, I wouldn't mind trying this and doing that. You should see my you should see my my ideas list. I, I, there is so much opportunity right there, right now at the moment. Like, yeah, it, like I said, innovation is just everywhere. Everyone's got the time to look at these things. So, yeah, we're we're rolling out a lot of really exciting projects, but equally, I'm having to be very disciplined, especially as we deal with you know finite resources. You know, we need to protect. Um, we need to be yeah, really cautious of, you know, the limitations that are in our industry at the moment as well, particularly yeah. from, you know, the inability to monetize live performance in a physical sense um, is definitely caused a lot of problems for the industry. So I need to be uh, responsible uh, financially at the moment more than ever. It's a weird point in history where every artist is in the same position, whether you play to 20 people at a cafe or to 20,000 people in a stadium. I know you've always been a massive advocate for co-writing. Is this something you're really encouraging your artists to do right now? Yeah, we're definitely encouraging our artists more than ever to, to be writing and, and recording. Yeah, a lot of artists are getting on Zoom and, and doing songwriting sessions with people all over cool. the world, you know, um, which is incredible. Like just the fact that you can even just do what we're doing now. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, uh, two songwriters can sit like this as well and write a song with each other. Like that just opens up so many doors, breaks down so many walls. Um, yeah. You don't have to go to the airport and fly across the world to write a song. You can do it 
for free uh, looking at your computer. What do you look for when you're signing an artist at Unified? Yeah, well, I think like the first and foremost, it's the music um, and it's something about what they're doing that connects. But, you know, then it's about what kind of person they are and um, what their goals are, what their work ethics are, what their ethics are. Like, you know, you can't be best friends with everyone you work with, but at the same time, like we do try, you know, we're going to, invest in people's businesses and in people's careers and in people's lives like you know we wouldn't be able to work with these people for the kind the time that we have if we didn't believe in them and didn't have those kinds of relationships so yeah every relationship is going to last as long as that and and people change and things change and you know everything can change but ultimately yeah we we want people actually someone once said like we can't want it more than they want it yeah. You know, and that's, if you want, good. like, you got to work hard. Like, whether you're an artist or whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're, you know, what you, whether you run Muso, like, you can't just sleep in to 11 o'clock just because, you know, like, we've got to work yeah. hard. It, it, it's, this is not easy. And it's also very competitive um, yeah. to be in music. So it doesn't mean you have to gig till two in the morning and be up at six at the gym. Like, you'll, you'll burn out if you do yeah. it like that. But, at the same time, you need to have a work ethic if you want to be successful in anything, especially music. It, it feels like now that artists have a lot more responsibility in their career as well because they've got so much more to look after, like their social media, um, you know, making touching base more on their mental health and things like that. Rather than maybe 10 or 20 years ago, it seems like artists are a lot more active in their career and the direction it's going. Yeah, which is awesome. Like I, I, I really like that and I think that for some it's it's challenging though, like Nick Yates, uh, who who I mentioned before, who manages the yep. in Violent Soho, and he yep. said to me once he coined the phrase early on that artists are business owners by default. So when you pick up a guitar or you know or, or you start singing a song, you don't necessarily do that in the same way that I did it in a way of like I want to be a business owner. But eventually, a lot of these artists are responsible for like multi million dollar companies. Yeah, yeah, and they've got you know, hundreds of people relying on their to be able to do what they do. And so for some artists, they like completely thrive in that. Like I wish yeah. I could make music. Like I would have a field day as an entrepreneur if I could also make the music. Like hey, It's not like, too late to bring out the clarinet again, man. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about that actually. <laughs> I, I says <laughs> over Zoom, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, but for others, it's really daunting. And, and that's also why it's so important to have, you know, people that can look after creative people uh, in a managerial yeah. sense, in a in a financial sense, all the planning that goes into it because um, it's an incredibly rewarding career if it's done properly, but it can also be really overwhelming and quite um, destructive if it's not managed correctly. Where, where I feel that you guys are quite unique too, it seems like you're really investing in artists post-career as well, like by helping them set up labels. You've got Illy with one too. Um, Tids from Violent Soho as well. Is that something that's becoming more common, running a label? This for me, because I grew up and I still listen to, you know, punk music. Like, so yeah. all the some of the best punk labels are all owned by people from bands. So, like, Epitaph's owned by Brett from Bad Religion. Um, yeah. uh, Fat Records is owned by Mike from, from NoFX. Like, so to me, it was always like, well, yeah, like, that's what you do. You're like, remember, like, I discovered Jimmy Eat World because... Mark Hoppus yeah. from Blink-182 said on Triple J, everyone's got to listen to Jimmy Eat Like this was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, so I've always thought it'd be great for an artist to have that platform to be able to, you know, bring the next generation up. 
Um, yeah. But equally, yeah, we work with our artists in all sorts of capacities as well as far as investing and um, building careers where they want to outside of uh, their music because once they create success in their music and they create the platform yeah. financially, there's the opportunity to, to evolve. So, yeah, for us, we're always trying to think, um, yeah, how we can manage their careers. That's that's how we look at it. And it definitely feels like the more encouragement and options you give them career-wise, they'll be happier and better for it across the board. Is is there one artist whose work ethic really stands out? Yeah, well, I don't want to like play favourites, but I guess like the artist that I work yeah. with, you know, the closest would be Vance Joy. You know, like so we yeah. like – so my wife and I manage Vance Joy together and yeah. we've traveled the world with him. Um, you know, I've, I've sat in the back of cars in like Indianapolis as we go from like a, a record store signings to the radio station to sound check yeah. to dinner with the radio station to back to the show to play the show. And that doesn't sound like that much work, but at the same time you're like, you're in Indianapolis on a Tuesday. Like, where the hell is he yeah. in Indianapolis? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And he's and he's doing that day in day out um, when when you're on tour. So I think like you know the the work ethic of someone like that to be able to yeah. And, and a lot of our artists do it as well. Like you know when when we're on the road with Tash in the US, Tash Sultana, like it's it, it's yeah. nonstop um, because like you know what it's like. Uh, I guess bad example. You're in a band too, but at the same time, like. Let's say we fly to Brisbane and go to Big Sound and, like, we have a few beers and we fly back. We're like, oh, man, I could t- do with the day off. Like, yeah. you're on tour, especially in America. Like, you're going from city to city to city. That, that, that tour could be going for 40 days plus. You know, Vance's last US tour was it was a three-and-a-half-month tour. So yeah. that's going to be exhausting for anyone, no matter how much yoga, yoga you do and, and how much green juice you drink, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, um yeah, it takes a lot of commitment um, for the artists to be out there on the road. And for those listening too, the, those tours are a little bit different to touring Australia as well. They're, they're every single night with maybe yeah. a couple of nights off a month. Yeah, it's definitely a challenging time and I think that things are evolving as far as opportunities. But the best thing you can do right now is work on your art, I think. Um, and I think because it's, it's hard to create an audience if you don't have something to show them, obviously. Yeah. Um, but equally, if you have something to show, then figure out how to show it in a way that relates to your um, your personality. So, like, we work with an incredible up-and-coming songwriter from Byron Bay called Jack Bots. Yeah. Um, and, like, I can just talk all day about Jack. Speaking of work ethic, um, so he's actually in Queensland at the moment because he was visiting family when the borders shut. And so yeah. we've got him just doing a circuit of um, – you know, 100 capacity seated shows, Gold Coast, oh. Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, and repeat. Um, yes, yeah, sweet. And it will, will, it'll build out to go to further parts of Queensland. Uh, he's, he's live streaming on Twitch. Um, he's doing Facebook Lives. He's releasing new music. Um, I guess he's just kind of like obviously with the direction of the team, but he's yeah. just making the most of what we've got. Um, yeah. So I think it's just like looking at what what's in front of you. But yeah, unfortunately, I think there's like a there's not an obvious thing to do because if you've got zero followers on Instagram and you can't play gigs, I think the best thing you can do right now is um, yeah, make the best music you can. Not that it's all about Instagram, but the, I guess that makes no, the point sure. that uh, if you've got no platform, you're better off spending the time building your art. I think right now leads well into my next question because up and coming artists unable to perform live 
and the industry not being able to watch and interact, do you think this is a time where labels, managers, publicists are holding off on signing new acts to their rosters because everything's a bit uncertain at the moment? Uh, I'm look, Well, we're, we're looking 100% yeah. like we're signing. Cool. We've signed a, a number of artists during this time to the label and to the management company. and um, So, yeah, it's definitely not stopping. Um, but, yeah, maybe some people would be looking at it like that. Um, but yeah. I... I don't know when live touring returns. Like I wish I did. Um, but for me, it's not just about live touring. It's about, yeah, it's about building recorded music catalogs and, and build, yeah. like building careers for these artists, whether, whether we're geeking or not. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard and it's, it's, it's a, it's a hard topic to talk about because no one knows the future and I don't yeah. want to be one of those people that sort of makes a prediction because the only thing we know about COVID is that we know, nothing about COVID as far as yeah. how unpredictable it is. So I think we just need to be patient and find other ways to be innovative at this time. Like for me, uh, and once again, you need an audience, but, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in the power of live streaming. I think that that's a really big yeah. opportunity that is really starting to show maturity. Um, and I think that we're going to start to see a lot more of it. Um, yeah. You've got these awesome platforms like Isolate who are giving great opportunities to you know, to new artists to get in front of audiences. And I think like, you know, if you've got the opportunity to participate in something like that, like I would sign up immediately. So I think that's really, yeah. really powerful. But if you've got an audience, if you can sell a hundred tickets, like team up with one of these platforms and, and, and promote it and go live and sell tickets. Like fans, yeah. fans want to give artists money. Like they want to support their favorite artists, you know, and most fans, yeah. like most people could probably relate. Like, I used to spend most of my my personal money on travel and eating out and all these things that I can't do now. So yeah. if my favorite band does a live stream, it's like I'm there, you know, like yeah. I'm buying a T-shirt, I'm, I'm tipping, like I'm doing whatever I can to support them. So um, I think that there's a really big opportunity there. Yeah, I was interested in that. Are people still buying a lot of merch and vinyl throughout all this? Yeah, totally. Great. Like, yeah, people, cool. are, people are loving it because they want to – they want to support, once again, they want to support artists they believe in, but they also want stuff, you know. We want yeah. things to things to do. And there's great records that are still coming out. There's great, 2400 just dropped a bunch of Metallica and Rage Against Machine merch this afternoon, you know. Like, what a great time to buy a new Rage Against Machine <laughs> T-shirt, you know, with everything yeah, yeah, going yeah. on in the world. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, online merchandise is doing really well. It's a little delayed with the amount of stuff that's in the post at the moment, but... Yeah, it's definitely a very viable business right now. I remember talking to Tiz from Violent Soho just before the release of Everything Is A-OK, and that was in the heart of the storm, essentially, when the industry had just come to a stop. And I'm sure this happened to a lot of artists on your roster. How did you go about having to essentially scrap a timeline and in most cases start again? Yeah, well, we, we unfortunately had to cancel or postpone like, yeah, a lot, yeah. A lot of tours. But, yeah, so we're kind of the first came off the rank because the album came out just a few weeks after everything shut down. And they did yeah. an incredible – they didn't perform, but they did like a sort of telethon-type like live stream sitting on yeah. the couch. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that was that – was, it feels like like a lifetime ago, doesn't it, now, when we all just yeah. thought this thing would last a few weeks and we get back to work. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's taken a lot of adjustment. We also released the Ocean Alley record in June, which was a huge success. Um, in Hearts yeah. Wake released an album last month as well. Uh, also, yeah. still in August, so this month. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, definitely ha- having to evolve and find different ways 
to release records. We also had Ocean Grove put out their album like in that week and they were doing record signings. Um, yeah. And that was kind of like the last sort of sense of normalcy, I think, that we've seen as, as a business. Are you finding some bands are reluctant about releasing music at the moment? Because, you know, half the fun about releasing an album is being able to go out and tour it. Well, it's interesting. Like I've heard some people say like they put their album out, but then maybe the next tour will be the tour for the next album <laughs> because now yeah. they're just like yeah. writing the next one. Uh, not everyone's doing that, but I think everyone's reacting differently. Um, I, I know some people are waiting. I know initially the major labels were holding back some of the sort of big blockbuster releases, yeah. um, but they seem to be coming again, like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry have both released albums in the last month. So it feels like things are kind of going back to normal like normal, I guess, in that sense, yeah. uh, because people are consuming and people need stuff to to do. And and as long as the music's good, which there is so much good music coming at the moment, um, I think yeah. we just need to keep bringing it. And when that beautiful day comes, when bands are allowed to tour, it's going to be great for Aussie artists, isn't it? More opportunities than ever. I know Unified the Gathering next year is all Australian, looking like it's looking like we're not going to have international acts for a while. Plenty of opportunities for the next generation of Aussie artists too. Oh my god, yeah! And it's something we've been talking about as a company. It's like, how can we, how can we work on like with the merch side of things? How do we do more Australian like products? And how do we sort of like not in like a nationalistic way, but it's like, how do we support yeah. Australia? Like I was saying before, like I needed to buy new headphones. I wanted to get newer headphones because it's an Australian company. You know, like yeah. I think that same thing's going to translate to music. Well, it's going to have to because. Katy Perry's probably not coming here anytime soon. Whereas, you know, Violent Soho and, and Ocean Alley and hopefully British India, they're all going to go out on the road and yeah. you're not going to be able to buy a ticket to see the Foo Fighters or Justin Bieber because they're just not going to be here. So, um, yeah, that's exciting. Like the thought of that, if, if that can happen at some point in the next, you yeah. know, whoever knows how long, like that's going to be a great moment for Aussie music. People have spent a lot of time in lockdown finding other things to do. Do you think the hunger for live music is still going to be there when things go back to normal? Yeah, I think so. Like someone was saying that to me the other day about yoga as an example on like a much smaller yeah. level. It's like, well, why would you pay to go to yoga class? Because now you've just learned to do it at home. Um, but, and I was talking to my wife about this and it's like the energy you get from being in a room around other people, other like-minded people is really powerful. And so that's say 20 people in a yoga studio, but extrapolate that out to 10,000 people yeah. at, a, at an Amity Affliction show. Like that's way better than sitting at home yeah. know, knitting or um, <laughs> yeah. making croissants or whatever, whatever we, <laughs> yeah, baking bread, yeah, yeah whatever we picked up as a hobby. <laughs> I think, um, I think we'll be fine. Um, there will definitely be all that stuff with the social distancing and, yeah, who knows what a mosh pit looks like post-COVID, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll um, find out. How are you feeling about Unify the Gathering? It must be so weird just not knowing. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess we'll see what Daniel Andrews says, but I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if a heavy music camping festival is on his on his priority <laughs> priority agenda right now. Um, look, we'll be ready to go if we're allowed to, um, but yep. we've got multiple backup dates. Um, yeah, we just, you know, obviously safety uh, of the public sure. and, and the artists and the workers, like so many people are going to have to, you know, go into this um, committed, you know. Could you imagine like the night before your festival, like if, you know, like after this, like we can't, there's no, this is not a time for taking risks um, yeah. just so we can make money. Uh, I really don't subscribe to that. I think like public health is just so important and we just can't take those kinds of risks. So 
you know, fingers crossed, you know, we're in the mosh pit in, in Gippsland next year. Yeah, whenever whenever they let us, uh, we'll be there. Do you think this has all brought the industry closer together? Yeah, I hope so. Totally. Yeah. I think that, yeah, a lot of, like I, I, I've said a few times, I think I've done almost more networking in the last six months than I've done in as, as, yeah. as my, much of my career. The amount of times I've popped up on a screen like this with someone I've never met before or someone that I know but didn't sort of necessarily to work with prior to this. So, yeah, I think um, everyone's going to have their own agenda, but at the same time, I'm definitely feeling uh, just the society in general is just feeling more and more collaborative. Streaming is obviously massive during this whole pandemic. How important is it for younger artists to be aware of the power and the reach of streaming? It was a great report that came out late last week uh, on the state of global streaming. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it's growing. Um, they're predicting that the global music industry will grow again this year, um, even with so much of – this is recorded music, but even even with so much stuff missing um, as far as, like, a lot of physical sales are restricted because most stores are shut and stuff like that. But yeah. um, releasing music, like, it, it might feel like the tiniest amount of money when you get your first – 5,000 streams, yeah. but when that turns into 15,000, into 50,000, into 150,000, into a million, into 100 million, all of a sudden yeah. you're like, oh, wow, this, this is like I can really make a living off this. Um, and it might seem scary at the start, but, um, yeah, make great music and put it online um, and, and, and get it out there. Like the opportunity is there. Like it's never been never been a time where an artist could write a song and put it online like this and, and eventually monetize it. So I think that's a really important thing to to get your head around because there's still press out there that sort of says that streaming is bad for yeah. music and it's just not true. Um, no. And you mentioned the co-write thing because you're potentially referencing a speech I did at Big Sound a few years ago um, and I said a similar thing then about streaming. It's like don't waste any time talking about how bad it is because all it is is allowing us to – allowing our artists to get paid for the music that they create. So it's a, it's really exciting. Got a couple of questions from our Muso Axe, one of our favourites, Little Green. Do you have any tips on how to utilise analytical tools such as Spotify and Instagram, insights to grow an artist's career from the ground up? I think um, – I think it's, it's first and foremost, it's important to know your analytics. And I think that we're lucky that we have like Spotify and Apple give you the access to that data in a, in a pretty easy way uh, with the apps. So I think using that is really smart. I think um, I've kind of got this obsession and hopefully this makes sense, but with this concept of like extrapolating out um, yeah. the consumption that you're already receiving. So the, the thing about streaming is that what we know about it is that it's relatively recurring. Um, it will go up and it will go down, but there's usually sort of like a, a, a sort of uh, a middle point where it sort of roughly hovers around. And so let's say yeah. you're doing 2,000 streams a day times 2,000 by 365 and see what that number is. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, cool, well, that's awesome because in a year's time I will have had this many streams. I'm really bad at math, so I'm not going to take a guess at <laughs> what that number is. Um, but I think the idea that I'm trying to get at is – Use it to plan ahead. So if you've yeah. got 100 Instagram followers and you you gained 15 last month, well, once again, you know, times that by 12 and you know where you'll be in 12 months. But then yeah. you use that to go, well, in that month where we announced the tour or where we, where we 
did a collaboration or a remix or whatever it is, we saw the numbers go from 15 to 25 or um, our streams went from 2,000 to 2,200 or, you know, and then you start to actually take the data and test it against the activity you're doing and then you start to use that to plan, set goals. Um, uh, Hopefully that's not too too in-depth, but that's somewhere where I'd start. Another question from the Muso side stage. What is the best way for up-and-coming Aussie acts to get on the radar of international labels? Um, well, we're set up globally. So we have our teams in the US and and in the UK and then um, a dip, a set up across Europe. So we, we put out records globally. That's our, our big thing. Um, yeah. But as far as look, the, the real honest truth in America, it's so competitive because like in Australia, you've got Australian bands wanting, wanting to be successful yeah. and there are other countries that care about Australia, but the most competitive sort of space in Australia is, is occupied by Australian bands. America and England to a lesser extent, but every band in the world, every artist in the world is trying to break those markets. And it doesn't make it any easier that that's also the same country where the biggest artists in the world live. So yeah. you're ultimately dealing with the most competitive market, but then equally because it's so big, the US that is, you've got um, really big niches so you've got yeah. like really cool indie labels in every single genre and really cool indie festivals in every single genre to support these incredible artists like like Tash Sultana. We work with a great label out of New York called Mom and Pop who are a fully independent label who's also worked with Flume and Courtney Barnett and had tons of success. Yeah. Um, but ultimately the reality is most of these labels are finding stuff when it's working here or when it's working somewhere like going back to the last question about data. Like yeah. if Little Green start, uh, puts out a song next week and it hits 100,000 streams straight away, like I guarantee you mom and pop will call you um, <laughs> because they have way, not just mom and pop, but every label internationally, they have way more analytics. And there's companies yeah. now that like when, when music starts to spike or peak or get in a load or whatever it is in a market, they'll email every A&R person in the world and tell them about it. So um, I don't want to like take the fantasy away or the sort of ambition away, but ultimately it comes back to just making really damn good music. Um, And when you're ready, you'll either have the people around you to push the music out to those people or those people will somehow find you. A bit different to emailing everyone before you went to the Meetem Festival in the south of France. <laughs> Those are the good old days. You email everyone, and only one person responded. So when I got there, I um, I just kept emailing until people responded. That was hilarious. And you're still working with him now? Yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Now, when I told a couple of people I was speaking to you for the Muso podcast, a lot of them had the same question, and I want to know too if you could give us your top three gigs, big or small. What are we going with? Well, I think. When Amity Affliction played Rod Laver Arena, like that was definitely a moment, like where I'd say, you know, probably the well, the first ever Australian like heavy band to play yeah. a venue like that. Um, that was just kind of yeah, that was pretty next level. I think the other one that always sticks with me is standing side of stage with my wife Rachel, who we managed Vance Joy together at Glastonbury while Vance Joy played, um, and it was pouring rain as you'd expect at a festival in England. It was like 12.30. It was like just after lunch, you know, it was right up. Um, And there was no one there five minutes before, but then as soon as he started, there was tens of thousands of people. 
but there was someone in the crowd, they have these big flags in Europe at festivals and they're waving a big Aussie flag. Um, cool. And I'm standing there holding my wife's hand. It's raining, you know, and Story's playing classroom. There's a guy with an Aussie flag and I just, yeah, got a bit emotional. Um, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, um, What else have I got for you? Well, another thing that's like been a huge moment in our career is building our American office and that's been something that's been yeah. really successful. And one of my favourite artists of all time is Dashboard Confessional who we actually now manage. We've managed him for the last three years out of our LA office. So seeing him, my my last trip to the States was um, for his tour, for his 20th anniversary. So seeing him play at Stubbs uh, in Austin, Texas, which is like a really classic outdoor venue in downtown Austin, like watching him as like this emo kid that grew up going to his shows and paying, you know, $70 to get in, um, you know, now they're, um, watching him play sold out, you know, in, in Austin, Texas. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely missing some really special moments. But um, actually, also the first time I saw Tash play in America, um, cool. I literally had promoters coming up to me, just being like, "We were at the Mercury Lounge in New York, which is only like 200 capacity," and some of the biggest mm-hmm. promoters just being like, "What the hell is going on? Like, this is the most." <laughs> Someone literally said to me, goes, I haven't felt this way since I saw Radiohead play this venue in like 1992 or something. So, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. I've had some pretty incredible experiences. What was it like living in New York and kind of watch seeing the Australian music industry like everybody else? Like what is the perception of Australian music from overseas? What was it like living in the States for a couple of years and I guess looking at Australian music from an outsider's point of view? What's the perception of the Australian music industry? Oh, it's, it's, it's incredible. Like I used to, I started going to America uh, like when the getaway plan made other voices, other rooms, um, yep. like one of the best Australian albums of all time. We made that in, in St. Cloud, Florida, which is also where they make their TV show cops. So it's a pretty scary town. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but that was like 2006, I think roughly. Yeah. And I remember going to New York and literally talking to like label people about yeah. the getaway plan, Amity affliction and people asking questions like, but how's the band going to get here? I'm like, well, I'm I'm probably the same way I did, like on the airplane. But the real question was, how the hell are we going to make this financially viable? Whereas now, like, um, you know, we used to sort of be able to talk about Australian success overseas with like Jet and the Vines and Savage Garden. And and then it started to gain momentum with like Five Sauce and Flume and Vance Joy. and, And now all of a sudden it's just like, it's game on. Like you go to a festival, like last time I was at Lollapalooza in Chicago, I was like, um, you know, Vera Blue's there and like, you know, Tammy Parler's yeah. there and it's just like, oh, I didn't even realize these people were playing, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. uh, so the, the vibe is great. Like people love Australians. Um, they love our work. I think we have, we have one of the most incredible music markets in the world because we have, we have triple J which supports Australian yeah. music from top to bottom. Um, and then we have incredible, you know, companies like Muso and like we have and, and Triple M as well, like that really support Australian music and not to mention like the venues like Melbourne is just like, you know, the way you can step from the workers, you know, to the north, get to the corner, to, you know, step and step yeah. all the way up. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty, pretty special place. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the growth of Triple J? You know, it's grown and grown and grown so much ever since we were both getting started in the industry. It is a powerhouse now. Like a Virgin is something that every band around the world wants to play. Millions of views almost instantly as soon as it goes up. That's obviously played a huge role too. Yeah, totally. And, it, and it, it, 
you know, it, it's hard and it's challenging if you're not on there. Um, yeah. You know, but it's not the only way. You know, like like, like I mentioned, an artist like Five Seconds of Summer, like we're seeing more and more Australian artists have success without it. But at the same time, it is a really um, there's not many stations in the world where you could put a song on out um, and never have played a gig before, and then within a month be able to sell the Corner Hotel. And like that's the kind of um, platform that we have, um, and it supports it supports real talent. Like people will compare it to say like the BBC in the UK, but like yeah. they still play Katy Perry. Like you don't hear like mainstream on Triple J is, is Flume or Vance Joy, or, you know, and like that's, it's just a whole other ball game. Whereas like, you know, Unearth High and all these great things. Um, yeah. It really does put Australia on the map in a big way. And we've got Unearth now, you know, what an amazing opportunity for up and coming artists. Yeah, that's right. And, but, but it, you know, and it reminds me of what someone like what, what Muso is doing as far as like, creating community, creating opportunities, giving artists something uh, to focus on and something uh, to yeah, focus their energies on as far as how they build their careers. How do you go about finding and scouting out up-and-coming bands to play at your festivals, for example? Um, so I don't do any of the bookings. Um, so we have yeah. teams that do all that. Um, obviously, like, there's a lot of different ways. Like we, always, we pretty much always partner with Triple J Unearthed to yeah. have some kind of support from there. We also like, particularly because like Unify is in Gippsland, which is a, you know, an area that doesn't have a ton of festivals. So yeah. we're always really supportive of local Gippsland artists. Same with our festival, Anna Plenty, which is in Shepparton. We do the same yeah. thing there. Um, but yeah, I think um, ultimately the, you know, the team's just trying to book the best lineup for the day, but also trying to make sure there's as much diversity and inclusivity as, as possible um, to ensure yeah you know, the festival and the stage represents, you know, our values um, as people and as, and as businesses. And we're lucky enough to have you involved in the Muso app too. Nick Crocker from Blackbird Ventures introduced me to the guys, which was like an amazing introduction. But just zooming out a little bit, like I guess our business model has always been about investing in careers and investing in building businesses, so whether it's 2400 or Domestic Lala or yeah. the artists themselves. And so we started this idea of, well, what if we started to invest in businesses that we don't run, but we, we invest in, in entrepreneurs and founders that we believe in, like in the same way that we invest in artists. So yeah. um, sort of started that when I was in America and, and, and made a number of investments in companies that are based in America. And I guess when I moved back to Australia, um, it was really amazing. Like luckily people like Nick, like introduced me to people like Muso. And I was like, wow, there's people doing what, the Americans are doing here and it's obviously yeah. they were but it was just a really nice moment to meet them um and I guess they just really believed in what they were doing and obviously still do um and yeah it's just once again another great platform for artists to develop their careers and I think that as we as more and more artists come into the world like we need more and more ways in which artists can can connect and, and and be a part of community. So it's really important, I think. Before Boom, even before Boomtown, like I used to call the Barley Corn Hotel in Collingwood and just convince them to let my mates' bands play, you know, like, and that was an yeah. awesome experience. But like the fact you can now do that via Muso and ensure like all the um, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and everyone's paid and it's all legal and it's all, yeah, um, it's just incredible. Like there's, it's just a no-brainer. And then you meet the people behind it uh, and see the fact that they're investing in 
you know, these kind of initiatives and they really genuinely care about the community, like, um, it's amazing. Like, it's, it's, it's something that the music world really needs. And it's such an important part of artist development, isn't it? Going out and just playing. doesn't matter if you're playing to one person, two people. doesn't matter if it sounds bad. Like at the start of your career, it's just getting out and playing and just experiencing yeah. that. And you, and you asked that question about Australian artists as well overseas. Um, the fact that artists often break here before they go overseas, it, I always have the analogy that they hit the ground running. So like when the Amity Affliction landed in America, they were already yeah. selling out so many venues around Australia and they were ready to just kick everyone's asses. They weren't just a brand new band. They were learning how to play. They knew exactly how to do it. Um, and so I think that playing gigs and like it, not every artist needs to gig, you know, more and more and more, but I think that the artists that want to do that, I think can get a lot out of just getting really good at what they do. Do you have like a, a pinch yourself moment coming up, whether it was, you know, hustling in the early days of Boomtown, uh, forming Unified, traveling around the world with Vance Joy and Tash Sultana? Is there one moment that really sticks out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there was probably a lot of moments that happened and I didn't even realize they were happening. Like, I, you know, one of the early Behind Crimson Eyes EPs, like I learned, out, I learned like a few months later that it charted on the ARIA charts. Yeah. Because I didn't even know how to check the ARIA charts back <laughs> yeah. then, you know. Uh, <laughs> like it was published in the Herald Sun or something. Um, so that was, those sorts of moments were pretty crazy. But there was a pretty cool moment where I was, it was my first South by Southwest and I was, um, I was flying, uh, for those who don't know, it's in Austin, Texas, and you sort of fly in and out of Los Angeles, and I was flying back to LA, and I was in line to use the bathroom on the plane, and the guy in front of me was Kevin Lyman. Um, Kevin Lyman founded the Warp Tour. Whoa. um, Which is like, you know, as a punk kid from Melbourne, it's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, are you Kevin Lyman? He's like, like, oh, yeah, (laughs) this is awesome. Is that what you followed up with, just the oh, yeah? You didn't freeze or anything like that? Probably. And now, you know, Kevin and I have a great relationship after many, many years. But it was like, wow, I'm on an airplane with Kevin Lyman, you know. And (laughs) it was probably like way more famous people on that plane than Kevin Lyman. That's all that mattered to me. All right, I've got to know, have you met Brett Guritz from Bad Religion, founder of the one and only Epitaph Records? That was a really big moment, actually. Yeah. I was really lucky. A really close friend of mine um, facilitated that introduction. A friend of mine who manages band Bring Me the Horizon, and we uh, this is really kind of like uh, uber cool, like juice uh, brand in LA called Moon Juice, and it's like you know green juice for like seventeen dollars fifty. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember we were sitting there, and Brett was like coming to meet us, and Matt was like. Did you ever think when you were 15 that you'd be meeting Brett Guritz at a moon juice? <laughs> <laughs> so LA. So, yeah. Um, but no, like people like that, like, you know, to to have stood by an independent business for that long um, yeah. and to support, you know, like Tim Armstrong has his own label as well from Rancid and like the anti-label, which supports like Tom Waits and like all these artists. Yeah. It's like, can you get someone more important in culture? Like for me, yeah. you can't. Um, it's just so inspiring in a world where major, sorry, independent labels sort of made their careers from, you know, becoming valuable and selling to majors. Like you've yeah. got labels like, um, you know, like Beggars and, and Excel and, and Epitaph and these like long-standing independent labels that have just stuck around. It's like, yeah, it's incredible. And they're from a, from a business point of view, their value is just like through the roof. Um, yeah. But 
I dare say that's not the reason why they're independent. They're independent because that's how they want to operate. And, you know, I try to operate under those values as much as possible. Um, you know, we're an independent company and, and, it, and it definitely has its moments where it's tough, yes. especially, you know, the beginning of COVID, it was just like, oh my God, like we were, um, yeah, we canceled like millions of dollars of worth of gigs, like in a space of like a few weeks. And you just sort of sit there going, yeah. maybe I should have sold the company. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> but no, um, I just say that for comic relief, like that obviously no, hasn't no, been no. easy, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely very rewarding to be able to be, be sort of in, able to control your destiny and, and the people around you. I know you're a big reader. Are there any books that you could recommend to help artists from a business perspective? Mm, good question. Let me see what I've got next to me right now. Um, <laughs> the thing is with reading, it's like... Uh, it's like trying to figure out what you think you need at that time as far as do you need to be inspired creatively by like someone else's story, like by say David Geffen or by, um, you know, Keith Richards or like whoever it is that kind of pressed your button or do you need to be inspired yeah. on a spiritual level or on a philosophical level or do you just need someone, do you want to read about Steve Jobs? You know, like Steve Jobs' book yeah. is incredibly inspiring. Um, but... I think that there's a great book called Rockonomics. Um, it's just about the music industry and it's an economist writing about the music industry. Um, the thing with these books is they sometimes don't age incredibly well. So it's like read that now. Um, Get your band on MySpace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be huge. Um, but, yeah, I have a, I have a, a huge uh, reading uh, appetite and the beauty of reading nowadays is – everything's available to us through audiobooks as well. And like, they're like the, the, po- the free podcasts that are out there. It's just like crazy the amount of stuff that we can get our hands on. Um, but it really depends on what motivates you. Like from a podcast point of view, like tapping into people like Tim Ferriss, if you want to sort of get really inspired from a sort of high performance point of view, that's something that can also be really great. Um, but yeah, I could kind of go on all day. What are your top three predictions for, the next couple of years in the Australian music industry? Well, I think that the first one, which is that Australian music is just going to continue to dominate. Um, yeah. And I think that that's just something that we should all be very excited about and very proud of. Um, I think that streaming will just continue to grow our industry. Um, like I was reading, uh, I mentioned this report, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's published by a company called Midia, M-I-D-I-A. And yeah. um it's predicting, yeah, streaming in the US anyway to basically double over the next six years as far as the value. So um, yeah, right. it's just a discovery tool. It's a monetization tool. It's a way in which that we can get our music out. So I think that's just yep. going to continue to grow. And then my third prediction is that, I don't know, I think people, you mentioned it as well, people are going to keep wanting physical product. Um, yeah. You know, I don't think we're going to be, it's not going to be always stay the same. Um, it's going to evolve like slowly, slowly, who I mentioned, um, I think I mentioned them, but slowly, slowly, we're yeah. incredible band we work with. Like they just released, recently released a merch line with their own brand of coffee. And what? like, I can't yeah. disclose the numbers, but they made a lot of money selling coffee. Oh my um, God. So, you know, I think it's, I think that people are always going to want to hold on to something. Um, so, yeah, they're my three predictions. And they're not really predictions. They're, they're, to me, they're actually quite obvious, but I think we need to stay the course and, and, and look forward to those, those three things still being a really big part of our future. Definitely. Well, if you could give the 17-year-old Jaden 
just starting Boomtown Records, one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, I think just keep just keep going, you know, just keep keep doing what you're doing, keep following your your dreams, and like listen to like trust your instincts because they're real. Um, the gut has more nerve endings than the brain. Like it's a fact. Um, so, you know, lean into that and like, and just genuinely like, yeah, believe in yourself. Um, but also don't get carried away and remember that not all is, not all that's glitter, not all that glitters is gold. Um, because like I used that analogy of extrapolating out your daily streams, like I probably could have done that 20 years ago with my career. Um, and yeah. it's basically what I'm trying to do with the rest of my career. Um, because it's all, it's all already in motion. So, um, yeah, it's going to keep following my gut, following my heart. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for chatting to us today. I want to finish on a quote. This is a quote from your 2016 keynote speech at Big Sound. You said, I wanted to start a label based on Epitaph Records. I love the idea that maybe one day a kid would turn over the CD and see the Boomtown logo and buy the CD because of that reason. Just what I did, only I could dream. Have you achieved that dream? I think, um, like, it's an entrepreneur's job to kind of, like, carry the weight of the world on their shoulders and a lot of the weight of that world is like you suck you're not good enough you should have done this you should have done that um and obviously you got to be careful with that stuff because it's not great for your mental health but i guess the reason why i frame it in that way is that uh i know we've done a lot of great things but you know there's a lot more to do Uh, i'm very very proud of what we've built um incredibly proud of what we've built but um yeah there's always going to be more that we can do so um yeah, but thank you. That's a really nice quote and nice to reflect on on those kinds of sentiments. But Well, I'm going to say yes as an outsider looking in. <laughs> <laughs> i got one, one final prediction, though, that I probably should have shared. And this is the stuff that's kind of scary, but, like, the world is, is changing and innovating faster than ever. And the idea of, like, sitting in your living room and watching a concert, like, a year ago was like, yeah, right. Yes, right? that's a good point, normal. man. So that's pretty normal now. So... Well, the the evolution in um, in gaming and virtual reality and um, virtual characters and these sorts of spaces are like going to they already are happening. It's all here already, but the mm. the, the rapid evolution of this stuff is happening pretty pretty significantly and pretty fast. So I guess there's no like clear sort of like this will happen by this date, but like yeah. that's a space that's really interesting and one that's really going to transform the way that we consume music and the way that we interact um, as people. So that's another exciting thing that I think we've all got to look forward to. It feels weird, doesn't it? It feels like that stuff was always going to happen, but things like this may have just sped it up. Yeah, yeah. it's like uh, 10 years of history, like in, in, an, in an evening or something like that. There's, yeah, there's yeah. Someone really smart said that once, but that's what's <laughs> happening right now. So, yeah, here we are um, and lots of, lots of things to look forward to. Thanks so much, Jaden, for joining us on the first episode of the Muso Podcast. Amazing to hear your insights into what's happening in the music industry at the moment, the history of Unified and all of the exciting developments to come. It's a great story and looking forward to actually catching up for a beer when this is all over. How good was that? And what a way to kick us off. We hope you enjoyed the chat and we've made it super easy. We've summarised the episode in our show notes just down below and can't wait for episode two with the one and only Lauren Mikor. She's the manager of Australian electronic powerhouse that is Running Touch and founder of the Postmodern Collective. And we'll be chatting to her about all things artist management. So if you haven't created your free Muso profile yet, it's super easy. We'll help you get discovered, get gigs and get paid 
and see you for episode two on the Muso Podcast.